I'll give you guys just a minute to find it. If you need some help, it's right before 2 Thessalonians. In my Bible, it's page 1572. Yeah. 1465. Oh. Yeah, almost 100 page difference. Okay. So um, it's right after um, Colossians. So it's one of Paul's letters. You have Philippians and Colossians, and you have 1 Thessalonians. If you hit 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, anything like that, you've gone too far. So just go backwards a little bit. But 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now, I was thinking about this. Why should we be excited for this? Why should we be encouraged by this? You know? I think, number one, this is a really good time to keep our eyes on the Lord, okay? Um, there's a lot of uncertainty going on, going on. I mean, we're watching our nation decay. We're watching law and order decay. We're watching globalists trying to take over and seize not just America, but the world, you know? And, and I, I've thought about that many times, and I think about the Tower of Babel, and I think about how at the Tower of Babel, God said, this is not good. Let us go down there and confuse the language. He brings judgment upon the globalist agenda. Right? He brings judgment upon empires that try to take over the world. And um, I believe he will do it again. He will not let this go for long. You know, um, We see our constitution being shredded and um, buried by, by many people. You know, we see failed elections. We just saw a very red state nominate two senators who are absolute psychopaths. One is a so-called pastor. A so-called pastor. And he believes in critical race theory, getting repar reparations, in the um, Equality Act, which is absolutely evil absolutely evil you we are going to see so many businesses suffer we are going to see churches suffer we are going to see our freedoms be taken away because this act i believe will pass with them in office you know fortunately there are a lot of godly people and good people fighting you know but we see all this stuff going on and i wanted to read you guys a quote from jay adams was it Jay? No, John Adams, the founding father. Jay Adams is a guy who writes about like founding fathers and stuff. And this was um, to, I believe, the Massachusetts militia that he wrote. You guys are going to recognize the quote at the end, but this is the whole thing. It was a letter written to them, to a bunch of soldiers. It says, while our country remains untainted with the principles and manners which we are now producing Desolation in so many, which are now producing desolation in so many parts of the world, while she continues sincere and incapable of insidious and impious policy, we shall have the strongest reason to rejoice in the local destination assigned to us by providence. So he's saying we haven't been tainted by what's going on in the rest of the world yet. We haven't been tainted by tainted by um, tyranny and dictators and stuff like that in, in America. And, and he, he believes it's by God's providence that this has happened. But then he warns. He gives a stern warning. But should the people of America once become capable of that deep simulation towards one another and towards foreign nations, which assumes the language of justice and moderation while it is practicing iniquity and extravagance. So he's talking about hip hypocrisy. Right? They say, they say we are, we're, we're talking about justice and liberty, but really it's just extravagance. And um, <clears throat> uh, where was it? The language of justice and moderation while it's practicing iniquity and extravagance. You know? And displays in the most captivating manner the charming pictures of candor, frankness, and sincerity while it is, while it is rotting, or rioting in rapine and insolence. This country will be the most miserable habitation in the world because we have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. Um, avarice, ambition, 
No revenge or gallantry would break the strongest cords of our Constitution as a whale goes through our net. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to govern to the government of any other. You guys probably all recognize that last part. That our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. And we have seen that we are no longer one nation under God. Now there's all these sects and stuff like that going on. And I think we have a few options with this. Number one, we can fall into depression, despondency, thinking, oh, hope is lost, you know. Um, Probably not the best thing that we can do. Um, When things do get bad, we can become apostates. That means you fall away from the faith, you leave the faith, you leave Jesus Christ to keep your comforts in this world, right? Just give me food and medical care and video games and entertainment and I'll be happy. Or we can become militaristic in our fight against evil. Or we can keep that which has been entrusted to us through the Bible with faith which means we stand in God's word. We can we consider everything that's going on around us, and we stand on his word, right? We stand in hope. We stand in hope that he is not idle, that he is not just sitting by watching this, that he will act. He does maybe allow things for a time, but he will act, and he is merciful. Our God is merciful, guys. Okay. We talk about a God of judgment and justice, and that is what he is. But he is also merciful. He's merciful. Don't ever forget that. And, and we stand and sing that we are what his word says we are. Right? We are made in the image of God. We are redeemed by him through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And we are sons and daughters of the most high God. Right? And we have power. Through him. We have truth through him. We have love through him. And we will not be tainted by this world because of him and because he holds us intact. Right? Or we can go and act like the rest of the world, which is a draw. I want to be angry and mad and forget. Then, you know what it says in Matthew? It says, Because lawlessness abounds, the love of many will go, grow cold. You know, so while we're watching riots in the street and stuff like that, what am I thinking? Okay, how am I going to run those people over when I get out there and I see it happening? You know, I mean, that's that's the wickedness of my heart. Right. That's not shouldn't be a meditation, the meditate, the things I meditate on. I should be meditating on what is good and noble and of good report and is upright. Right. Should be praying for those people. They are absolutely lost. They think this, they think what they are going for in the social justice movement, in this socialistic movement, is going to bring them peace. And it will do nothing of the sort. The only thing that brings peace in this world is Jesus Christ. You know, we see our freedoms being taken away by big tech. You know, I mean, even our president, president gets banned from Twitter and Facebook. Um, Rick Green, who's um, a constitutional coach, and uh, teaches people the Constitution, his, he's, he's worried that his Facebook program is going to be banned. Because they talk about holding to the Constitution. They're not talking about starting militias and going after people or anything like that. They're talking about holding to the Constitution and they want to ban him. You know? But I do believe the hope in the, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ for his saints, for his church is one of the things that will keep us intact, keeping that hope, right? So I want you to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Starting in verse 13, it says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. I love the fact that he talks about death as a sleep. You know, 
I had the question brought to me once, should we as believers cremate? And I was like, well, I don't think you can't do that. There's nowhere in the Bible that says not to do that. But there is a picture of being laid to rest, right, in a nice cushy coffin, (laughs) and it looks like the person's sleeping, right? I mean, that's that's the picture that it gives. And one day they will be awakened, right? And he says, even so... God will bring, the, bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. So the Thessalonians, they had gone on and they had heard about the second coming of Jesus. And they say, where, where is it at? Where is this coming that we've been awaiting? Some of us are starting to die. We're, none of us are going to see it. And so Paul encourages them with this. Verse 15, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So I want to comfort you with those words today. You know, even if you do die, you're coming back with him, he says in verse 14. Right, And I love how Paul thinks, well, this is probably going to happen in my time. You know, in every generation, the Lord has kept us on tippy-toe. He's kept us on the edge of our seat waiting for his coming, right? Waiting for him to take up his church. And it was true then, and it's true now, right? We are waiting. And ever since Jesus left, they have been waiting for him to come back. When he ascended up to heaven and was received by a cloud, all the disciples just stood there looking. And then some angels had to get their attention and say, hey, you guys got work to do. He just told you to do something. Now go do it. You know, they were waiting for him to come back already. This is an awesome passage. But look at verse 17. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. We who are alive and remain shall be caught up. So the dead are going to rise first. Then those who are left will be caught up. That word caught up is the Greek word harpazo, which is translated in the Latin Vulgate as, um, I think it's rapturo. And what's where we get the word rapture from. Okay, so that's why we call it the rapture of the church because of the Latin translation. Um, You could call it the snatching away. And it means to take and to grab almost violently, to yank, you know, to, to snatch away, almost like a robber snatching something. And that's what our Lord Jesus Christ is going to do to his church. Um, also, one thing I, I want to just notice is the Bible does not teach soul sleep. Because he says, you know, those who sleep in Jesus. Absent from the body present with the Lord, the Bible says. Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Yeah, your, dead's gonna, your, your body's going to stay here. It's going to be dead. It's going to be buried. But you will be in paradise. Your spirit, your soul. So it's the, for, the, for, the, for those who are dead, it will be the bringing together of the body and the, the spirit again. Right? But for us who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, we we will be taken up, right? We'll never have that separation. We'll never experience death. It's going to be an awesome time. I hope I'm somewhere very public when this happens. You know, just to freak everybody out. But I'm sure it's going to be all over the place. So, you know, but I want to freak people out too. You know, I want them to be like, what just happened? Jordan was standing right there. Yeah, Bilbo. He puts on the ring at his party. Everybody's, oh! <laughs> um, Now, I want you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So right now, I just want to kind of define what this event will be like or what it is. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So if you hit Romans, you've gone too far backwards. Um Yes. (laughs) 
So verse 50, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. Look at that. We shall all be changed in a moment. And the twinkling of an eye, I can imagine Paul sitting there wondering, what's like the fastest thing I can think of? And he's like, oh, blinking's really fast, you know? Or the light hitting off, the, off your eyes really fast, you know, just that twinkle. Probably the fastest thing he could think of. I can't think of anything faster. It says, we shall not all sleep. Um, I'm sorry. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. And we shall be changed. So we who are alive still shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he gives us encouragement. So with that truth, with the truth that we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, that what is mortal will put on immortality, what is corrupt will put on incorruption. Because of that, he says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You know, there are those who say, well, just relax and be raptured. You know, oh my goodness, the whole world's going to hell. Eh, I'll just sit here and eat my popcorn and watch it. You know, just relax. I'm going to get raptured. No need to worry. That should not be our attitude. Because of this truth, it should urge us on to glorify him, to, sit, to see people saved, to see them come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ, right? Now go to John 14, 1 through 3. So go backwards, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, beginning of the New Testament, prior to Acts, John chapter 14. And when, I think when John, or I'm sorry, when Paul says, this I say to you by the word of the Lord, I think, I, have a, I can't prove it, but I have a seeking suspicion that he's talking about this passage, Okay. He says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions or dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No way to come to the Father except through Jesus Christ. To have your sins forgiven by him, to follow him into heaven, right? He makes the way for us. We don't make it ourselves. We are not saved by our works. We are saved by his grace through his Son. But look at what Jesus says. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Okay? That is, I believe, speaking of that moment when he takes his church to be with himself, his bride, and it is speaking of wedding language, the Galilee wedding. We've talked about it. That's what we've talked about when we talked about the rapture in um, Matthew 24 and 25, was that, that day when he comes and gets his bride, right? When Jesus Christ himself comes, there's this shout, there's the voice of the, um, the forerunner, you know, in Thessalonians, it's the archangel who shouts and blows the trumpet, you know. And then here comes Jesus Christ coming to take his bride to himself. And what does he do? They put her on a chair that is extended off the air, and it's called the flight of the bride. And they carry her to that place that he's prepared for her at his father's house. Okay. It's awesome. 
It's an awesome picture of what Jesus Christ is going to do. And that's what he's talking about here. That's what Paul is talking about in 1 Thessalonians. Okay. Now, none of these necessarily say, well, this is going to happen before everything gets really bad. Right? So you have three different views of when this event is going to take place. There is the pre-tribulational rapture, which is what I'm teaching. There is the mid-tribulational rapture, which some teach. There is the post-tribulational rapture. So the, the tribulation period, happen, period happens for seven years, right? It starts with the signing of a tre peace treaty by Antichrist. The temple's rebuilt. And uh, halfway through, the Antichrist breaks his treaty. Right? And then things get really bad. Let's say you have the tribulation period. The last three and a half years is called the great tribulation period. And he breaks it when he offers um, an image of himself in the temple of God. And there he proclaims that he is God. The Antichrist. A man will do that. Those who believe in a mid-tribulational rapture believe that that happens when that happens. The problem is is that the, 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 the rapture is always speaking of as imminent, meaning it could happen at any time, right? So Paul was waiting for it in his day, and we've been waiting for it ever since. We've been waiting for the Lord to come back. But if it happens during the midpoint of the tribulation period, won't you kind of know that if you, know, if you see the Antichrist sign the peace treaty, you're like, oh, I got three and a half years till we're raptured, you know? It's not imminent then. It's not an any moment rapture. If it's post-tribulational, you have the same problem. But there's another problem with post-tribulational. It's the fact that Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, and I will take you to be with myself, and there you will stay with me, right? What would be the point of making that and building that place, that temporary abode upon his Father's house in heaven for us, if we're just going to go and come back? If we're more like a yo-yo, like he brings us up and then throws us back down. <laughs> you know? It doesn't make any sense. The only thing that really makes sense is that it's pre-tribulational. Okay? You have eminency, and you also have the fact that we get to enjoy or stay with him for that seven-year period before he comes back and then reigns on the earth for a thousand years. Because once he comes back, we come back with him, and then he reigns for a thousand years upon the earth. Right? Before he then makes, burns it all down, makes a new heaven and a new earth. Okay. It's called the Millennial Reign of Christ. So, um, are there verses, so I've just kind of reasoned it, but the biblical mind should be saying, are there verses, is there, are you, do you see a pattern of this throughout the scriptures? Because when you look at one specific doctrine, you should be able to find it all over the Bible. Jeremiah said, here a little, there a little, Right? The, the teachings of the Bible span throughout the Bible. So you be, should be able to find a pattern. You should be able to find types and pictures. You should be able to find teachings on these things. Okay? So we see some of them in, in the New Testament. But what about in the Old Testament? Okay? Now I'm going to kind of build this just a little bit more. Number one, the tribulation period is God's wrath upon the world. It is his, him punishing the world for its sin and for, the rejecting, for them rejecting his son, Jesus Christ, right? Okay, that's what the tribulation period is for. It is a time of vengeance that will come upon all peoples and all nations and all tongues and all kindreds, the Bible says. But the church is exempt from wrath, okay? You, you never have to worry about God pouring out his wrath on you. The only thing we worry about is the correction, because he wants us to walk with him. So he corrects us, just like a father chastises his son, it says in Hebrews. Okay? So the church is exempt from, it, from his wrath. Romans 5, 9. Much more than ha having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Saved from wrath through him, or saved from judgment through him. Okay? I believe that's specifically speaking, not of the tribulation, but of his final judgment on the sinner, wrath and hell, okay? Um, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, it says, 
We wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. You know, there are people who, when they die, they're experiencing God's wrath because they are in hell, right? He's talking about a future wrath, something that is going to happen, a, a particular event in this passage. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. So the same book that we were in before we came over here. Um, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, commenting on this patches, passage, says, The wrath of God here is future and hence cannot refer to a general wrath of God against sin, which is a present reality. This wrath is future. He then concludes that the wrath spoken of here is the wrath of God during the Great Tribulation, of which Jesus delivers us from. Okay, now I want you guys to go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So back where we were at the, at the beginning, and then just jump over one chapter. I've got a lot to go over, and we're already 26 minutes in, so I might not finish. First um, Thessalonians chapter 1 says, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who are drunk, get drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting, um, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. So we are exempt from wrath. He did not save us to pour out his wrath on us. Okay, Not in the tribulation period, nor ever. All right? Now, let's go... Um, let's go over some Old Testament passages. I want you guys to go to Genesis chapter 5. So, first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5. If you just read it, you're like, oh, it's just a bunch of boring names and people who lived really long lives. Okay? And, um, but the awesome thing is, is each of these names means something. So if you were put it, I'm not going to go over this a lot, but if you were to put all the names together in Genesis chapter 5, it actually has, a, it makes a sentence, okay? Man is appointed, a mortal habitation, but the blessed God shall come down teaching that his death shall bring the captives comfort, okay? It's a prophecy of Jesus Christ. It's awesome. God's word is awesome. Written... Uh, thousands of years before Christ even came. It's insane. But what I want you to look at is Enoch. Okay? These names, and all this comes before Genesis chapter 6. If you know what Genesis chapter 6 is, this is a chapter of judgment. God is going to flood the earth, kill every living thing on it that is not on the ark, besides like the bugs and stuff and you know things that can live in the water. Yeah. But look at verse um verse 21. It says Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years and Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. Now he has a son whose name means, Methuselah means, his death shall bring. Okay? His death shall bring what? His death shall bring what? I bet everybody was watching Methuselah and thinking, okay, well, we know God's going to flood the earth. He, he told us that. 
And now Methuselah's dead. Is God going to flood the earth now? You know? Before judgment happens, though, Enoch is taken. Enoch is taken. It says, And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. There you have the first rapture event in the Bible. God took him before the great flood, before that day of vengeance upon those who live on the earth. Okay? Before God pours out his wrath and kills every man, woman, and child who are not in the ark. Okay, then you have Noah. Noah finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. Okay? And it says, you know, he's told to build an ark, and he goes in with his family, and the Lord, it says the Lord shuts him in. He didn't shut himself in. The Lord shut him into the ark and preserves him. Okay, so you have one who is taken and the other one who is left or preserved. I think you see two things happen in most of these rapture passages. These, these passages where God takes somebody out away from um, his vengeance, his wrath. Okay, but then he also preserves somebody else. And I think that pictures the one who is taken and pictures the church those who believe in Jesus Christ, the other one pictures the Jews. Right? The Jews, during the tribulation period, will be sent to Petra, and there they will be for three and a half years. And the Lord will, it says he has prepared a place for them, for them, and there he will take care of them. He will preserve them. And so I think you see those two things happen almost in a sequence throughout Scripture. It's kind of awesome. Um. Next, go to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18, starting in verse 22. Um, so just a little background. Abraham's sitting in his tent. It's hot out. He's sitting there. He sees three visitors coming. And one of them is Yahweh, the Lord, okay, God, um, pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. And he's got two angels with him. And he goes and he says, oh, quick, you know, get some food for him. They go over and slaughter a calf, bring it. And they're eating together. And then they, uh, the men, they go for a walk with Abraham. And it says in verse 22, then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who, were, who, li who the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I shall spare all the, all the place for their sakes. Then Abraham answered and said, Indeed now, I who am but dust and ashes have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose there were five less than the fifty righteous. Would you destroy all of the city for the lack of five? He said, If I find there forty-five, I will not destroy it. And he spoke to him yet again and said, Suppose there should be forty found there. And he said, I will not do it for the sake of the forty. And then he said, Let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 should be found there. So he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, indeed, now I have taken upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of the 20. Then he said, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak but once more. Suppose 10 should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 10. So the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. So God is merciful and he's just. He's not going to destroy the righteous with the wicked. Okay, now look at 19 verse 1. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and he bowed himself with his face towards the ground and he said, Hear now, my lords, please turn in to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, No, but we will spend the night in the open square. But he insisted strongly, so they turned to him and entered his house. Then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. 
Now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you, came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. Basically, that we may rape them. So Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind him, and said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. See, now I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason why they have come under the shadow of my roof. And they said, Stand back. Then they said, This one came in to stay here, and he keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands, pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were there at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary of trying to find the door. Then the men men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whomever you have in the city, take them out of this place. For we will destroy this place because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out, spoke to his son-in-laws, who had married his daughters, and said, Get up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But to his son-in-laws, he seemed to be joking. When the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife, your two, your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hands, and the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. So it came to pass when they had brought them outside that he said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. Now look what happens here. God is going to pour out his wrath, right? Through these angels, he's going to rain down fire and brimstone from heaven and destroy this place with everybody in it. And he says, get out. And and these angels are merciful to them. They take him by the hand and pull him out of the city, right? They rapture him out of the city, he and his family. So that they don't have to experience the wrath of God in that place. Okay? It's, it's such a good picture of the mind of the Lord and what he does for those whom he loves and those who are his by covenant. Right? We enter into that covenant through faith by believing in Jesus Christ, his son. Would God shed his wrath upon his son? He did it once and he will never do it again. And he will never do it to those who are his by faith in his blood and his sacrifice and who he is, right? So we will never experience that wrath. This should be a verse we all have underlined in our Bibles. It's 2 Peter 2, 4 through 9. It says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. That's speaking of the angels in Noah's day who, um, in Genesis chapter 6, cohabitate with the women of the time and produce the Nephilim, these offspring of giants. You know, this wicked um, group of people who are on the earth in those days. So those angels who... um, He cast them down to hell, delivered them into the chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterwards would live ungodly. So they're an example. They're an example to all the earth. But it says this they willfully forget, right, that God brings judgment. Verse 7, it says, And delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. The Lord knows how to do that. He knows how to save us. He knows how to 
to preserve us. He knows how to, how to, how to reserve those for whom punishment is due and give it to them only and not to us. Right? Let's go to Daniel. So you got like Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, then Song of Solomon. Then you have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and then you have Daniel. So Daniel's right after Ezekiel, right before Hosea. Now Daniel is a fascinating book. It talks about the end, but it also talks about all the things, all the not all of the empires, but the major empires that are going to rule the world from Babylon to Rome and then even to the one that is yet to come, the revived Roman Empire. Okay, That's the one that the Antichrist will be over. Um, I did not write down what chapter we're in. Chapter chapter 3. Now, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. He had a dream of this great statue. And this statue represented the his empire and the ones that would come after. It represented him, Media Persia, which would take over Babylon. It um, represented Greece. It represented Rome. And it represents the revived Roman Empire. Okay? But what he does is this. This gold statue, the head is his head. So he makes a giant statue, and he says, anytime you hear any music, the flute, the lair, the harp, anything, you are to bow down and you are to worship the statue that I have made. Basically, you're worshiping Nebuchadnezzar. That is bad. We only worship the one true God. Yeah. And so there, there are some guys in the city who will not worship all right, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're Jews. They come from Israel. They were taken there as captives. And they won't bow down and worship. Look at verse 19. It says, Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were, his, who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, and their turbans, and their garments, and were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace was exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Now, um, the king had told them, who shall deliver you from my hand? How are you guys going to survive this? And they said, even if the Lord doesn't, we will not bow down and worship your image. Right? The Lord could save us, but maybe he won't. Either way, we will only serve him. But notice that the furnace was heated up seven times hotter. Now, I wonder why seven is such an important, important number, especially in Daniel. You know, you have the, the prophecy of the seven weeks, you know, or the 70 weeks, you know, which are divided up into sevens. And the last one is seven years long. Um, it's just very interesting. Why seven? Why does it say seven? I don't think it's there for no reason. I think it represents the tribulation period. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the fiery furnace. Then look at verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And they answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. So he throws three men in, but there's four men in there, and one of them looks like the Son of God. Amazing. Into a furnace that's been heated up seven times hotter. You know, I believe representing that last period in human history before the Lord reigns, when there's a seven-year tribulation period. A seven-year 
fiery ordeal that's going to be on the earth, right? Now, why are these guys in there? I believe they represent the Jews during that time. There's a, there's a fourth guy that's not even in this passage, right? Who is it? It's Daniel. Where the heck is Daniel? He must have worshipped the he must have worshipped the golden image, right? We know that's not true. He wouldn't even eat food that wasn't given by prescription from God, right? They were trying to feed him all the king's delicacies. And he says, "I can't eat these. I have never eaten anything unclean. I'm not going to start now." And he is a picture of someone who is devoted to God more than anybody else at that time. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go through this time, but where is Daniel? Now, it could be just as simple as he is off somewhere doing business. The king sent him on an errand or something like that. But why isn't he in the passage? I think it's by design that he's not in the passage to show that he has been taken away. Right? He is the picture of the church. He has been taken away. He is not there. But those um, whom God will protect go through it, but yet their clothes don't even smell like smoke. Right? It says, verse 26, Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shavak, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire, and the satraps, administrators, governors, and the king's counselors gathered together, and they saw these men on whose body the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them, because the Lord was with them, just like he will be with the Jews during the seven-year tribulation period. Now, there's one more person I want to look at, and it's the Apostle John. So John, John the Apostle, in, um, in, in John's Gospel, chapter 21, I want you to go there. We, we see an interesting verse. Now, I want to kind of build it up just a little bit. John is, calls himself the apostle that Jesus loved. You know? It's his own writings, but he still says, <laughs> you know, a little cocky there. Are you Jesus' favorite there, John? You know? It's one of the same guys that got their mom to say or, you know, ask if he and his brother James could sit at the right hand of Jesus in his kingdom, you know? So I'm sure the other apostles didn't really like him too much because of that. But I think he writes that for a reason. I think he writes that Peter disbelieved, but the, the disciple whom Jesus loved did believe when they saw the grave clothes. I think there's a reason that Jesus says this in uh, verse 20. It says, Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved falling. And uh, Peter had just told or Jesus had just told Peter that, yeah, someone's going to take you and take you where you don't want to go. They're going to bind your hands and stuff. And so Peter asked, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who had also leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Then the saying went out among the brethren that this disciple would not die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die. But if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? This is, this is the disciple who testified of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, I believe that John is a picture of the church. He's the disciple that Jesus loves. The other disciples believe he's not going to die till Jesus comes back, which we know he did. You know, he's also the one in Revelation who gets taken up to heaven. Okay, go to Revelation. You have the letter to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. And then you don't hear the church ever mentioned again in the book of Revelation. Okay, it's never mentioned again. Saints are mentioned. But those could be Jewish saints, Jewish believers on the earth, or just people who believe during the tribulation period. But you never see the church again, because I believe the church is gone. And also, 
Starting in chapter 4, Jesus, I mean, John is taken into heaven. Now look at chapter 4 of Revelation. It says, After these things I looked, and behold, a, sta- a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard, which was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you the things which shall, which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one on the throne. And he who sat there was like jasper and sardis stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne, in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. You know, from this point on, starting in chapter 6, and in chapter 5, the lamb takes the, the scroll and it has seven seals on it. And when he starts breaking those seals, that's when judgment starts on the earth. In chapter 6, you see the first seal is the conqueror. The second one, conflict on the earth. The third seal, scarcity on the earth. The fourth seal, widespread death on the earth. The fifth seal, the cry of the martyrs. The sixth, cosmic disturbances. And then you have... Um, Where is it? The seventh seal is brings about the, the seven trumpet judgments. And you have all these trumpet judgments, seven of them. And then you have seven bowls of wrath that are poured out on the earth. And the church is not mentioned once. You know Why? Because Jesus Christ has come and gathered his church to himself so that we may be with the Lord forever. Right? And we get to come back with him. It says we will be riding on white horses when he comes back to... Um, to inflict judgment on those remaining on the earth who come to war against him. We're going to be right there. You know, it's awesome. Okay, I'll stop there. I still have more. <laughs> Go, here's, here's homework. Go read Zephaniah. Go read Zephaniah. And notice in, I think it's chapter 2, verse 3, it talks about hiding yourselves. For a time, but before that, it talks about the tribulation period. It talks about the time of, of clouds and darkness. Then in chapter three, it begins talking about the mess, the millennial reign of Christ and the millennial blessings. You know, it's kind of all there. It's awesome. We see this pattern over and over and over again. So when you're watching YouTube and you're listening to other teachers and stuff like that, and they are saying because um, post tribulationalism, like post-tribulational rapture or all-millennium millennialism is very popular right now. Okay? Go back and say, no, I've seen these patterns throughout Scripture. I have hope that this is going to happen, and nobody's going to shake me from that hope. You know? And I'm going to be fruitful until that day. Until that day that he comes, I will not sit on my laurels. That's like a Bible word. (laughs) I will not sit and be idle. I will be in prayer. I will be in prayer for my nation. I will be in prayer for my country, for my neighbors, for my city, for, for everyone who's around me, for my family. And I will be ready to give an answer for the hope that I have to anybody who asks. And I will go out and I will be bold in my love towards people. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.